Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on July the 20th, 2014. It's one thing to feel bored. People feel bored even when they're, they're working because work is often very boring in the first place, isn't it? But we find that we're bored even with all the entertainment, uh, masses of entertainment which is churned out incessantly for us to lap up and through entertainment today, primarily, we get uh, the moral changes, you might say, that we're supposed to adopt. And most folk do. It's very simple, monkey see, monkey do. And I've gone through, in many talks before, the art of uh, cultural uh, manipulation, you might say, or the direction of, or the directed culture that we're all prone to and always have been prone to. From the early days, of course, to the, the Greek tragedies and things like that, into the early Christian morality plays, and, and on it goes into the, the Enlightenment period, and then out came uh, more dramas, more secular-type dramas, until today we think we're seeing more choices and ideas, but in reality they're being uh, carefully selected by those that select what you're going to watch and see and believe and, and emulate too. Yet for all this massive variety of things to pass your time, uh, very few people are aware of the significance of the big boards and committees that select what will be shown and what will not be shown to the general populations and the heavy editing that goes on in all scripts and movies and so on to make sure we'll have the same in common repetitive uh, agendas pushed in our faces, basically. The correct way to think, the correct topics to talk about, the terms not to use anymore, things like that. And uh, we're constantly being trained by our betters, you might say. So it got me thinking uh, this evening as to what to talk about, and I thought, well, uh, since this is so prevalent and so powerful a technique that's used in us all, we can go into some of the histories of the past, and why not go back even into the ancient times uh, and go through that into the Christian eras and what the early Christians uh, adopted from the previous, uh, say, Greco-Roman eras that existed and brought into their their culture and so on, and how that developed down through the ages into even revolutions in some sense, uh, and, and into the changes that came along the way. There has always been conflict of some form or another down through the centuries, right to the present day, between what's sometimes called the church and the state. And it can be a variety of churches and the state, it doesn't matter. The state often has its own agenda, and but at one time I had to listen to the churches an awful lot more uh, to do with morality, etc. But the more secular a society we have, the more atheistical it happened to be, and the, with the rise of science, we now have science, the church and the state, and we have these three choices. Science, since it's so well funded and so well promoted through funding, has taken over from a lot of the other institutions which make up humanity in itself. And we must never throw churches and religions out the window because, as I say, down through the ages, even pre-Christian, that there were still state religions of a sort which gave some form of moralities to the people. That was, in essence, a lot the reasons a lot of them existed in the first place because people need a common code of ethics to survive if they're not to kill each other and steal from each other and plunder each other, etc. So you need some code to follow uh, a universal code that makes sense. Now, even in, in tribes which didn't have any complex religions, you found similar codes of behavior and ethics for to function. There's always a basic set that makes it work, even in a, in a small tribal situation. Otherwise, as I say, um, they'd have so many affairs and promiscuity. Uh, children wouldn't be having any parents to look after them and uh, poverty would increase and so on. But so they had simple rules and regulations to try and prevent most of this kind of thing from happening. And therefore, the family was promoted as a very powerful institution, which had to have a lot of respect given to it at all times, because if it's not for the family taking great care of their own and their offspring and their in-laws and so on, then you have a welfare system where the state takes over all those responsibilities. The family fades off into the background and the state becomes uh, the major domo, you might say. 
The ancient Greeks, for instance, often the philosophers, often talked about the restlessness on man, that there was something in man, uh, the spirit in man, that made him restless, uh, never really satisfied with everything he knew or was told or his circumstances. Constant restlessness. And, of course, you can subdivide that into station in life, uh, occupation, income, etc., uh, which it could add or, or detract from the various problems. So it's interesting to notice that we've always had this restlessness in us. But at one time, of course, in ancient times, you were allowed uh, various uh, opinions on what it was that you were seeking, and therefore religions were uh, kind of waiting in the wings to happen when they came on the scene, when there was something new in them. And that was the key of everything, new revolutionary-type religions. And people don't see them as, as such. They think they're perpetual and unchanging. But there hasn't been one yet that had started off without changing as concepts as it got older and older. The Greeks also talked about the difference between the state and the religion or the spiritual life of the public too. And Aristotle said that uh, in imperfect states there was a difference between the good man and the good citizen. It says such a difference would disappear in the best state. If the state worked upon it, the differences would disappear, and there what they called virtue and loyalty to the state and to each other would coincide, basically. There has always been a conflict between the state and the people, or religion, in, in all ages, actually. And they've formed two different kinds of moralities, and one of this one of the state where you've got a station. You're born as a citizen in a class, and all the rest of it. Your station in life, and that's a duty to give up, put upon you is to follow that station, very much like Hinduism in India, where nothing much changes. But um, and then then the state also wants you to follow its duties, being a citizen, etc., of the state. Uh, and that conflicts often with morality of what's called grace and perfection of religion, you see. And all religions seek some kind of personal uh, perfection. Uh, other ones are more communal, mind you, and they don't allow differences. But generally that's what's always been this this thing within everyone that pushes them onwards and makes me some ask questions. The spirit, you might call it this wandering spirit. They actually question everything and delve into things and so on. Uh, also has con conflicts, as I say, with the state. Because obviously looking for perfection means change. And then the state has has own ideas of change, especially in this day and age, where it wants to guide all of us to be good citizens, obedient, etc. A problem, too, with looking at the past is that many people have limited concepts of terms, they think that Gnostics were all the same, for instance, Gnosticism, and that those who were seeking perfection along a particular path. But, and, and certainly, you would have groups of communal Gnostics, you might say, who lived together, agreed with basic tenets of their society, and they, they become standardized after a while and almost fossilized too. Things that don't keep seeking perfection will become fossilized and more of an in-group type thing, and very strict and, and rigid, etc., even though they might start off as revolutionary. There's another code, you might say, too, the, the code of nature, which is in conflict again with many of these either spiritual or religious movements, and that of the state too. They're all pushing toward for certain particular changes, the restlessness within humanity itself, etc., the injustices and so on that go on all the time. And we must always remember that there's no perfection, I would say, in leaders, because leaders, especially in an economic system, tend to be a very similar type of ilk. They're, they have more of the psychopathic traits within them, they are out to get uh, grandi to, to aggrandize themselves, to gain lots of wealth and power and publicity, etc. They love publicity, and uh, they, they tend to be of a common ilk. So, and they can, psychopaths, by the way, can work together for their own personal uh, betterment as a gang or a group or a cartel or whoever it happens to be. And they have a lot of sway once they become awfully powerfully rich over governments too, so... 
there are lots of different things in conflict uh, as we go down through history to the present time, all competing. And you find that the law of nature is regarded basically as a code of morality, and it's, it's binding on everyone. And uh, reason is how you come through its code by reason, which does not come but throughout, through revelation. It's just reason itself, basically the law of nature. Roman law really was a form of reason or, or law of nature, and it was called just gentium, basically. And Christian countries took Roman law for their law, especially in the states. So their constitution was based on a form of government to do with Roman law. They thought that was the best kind possible for a form of republicanism with uh, elections possible, and, and the electional part was the only democratic part really there is in it. It still stands true today across most of the world, even when the elections become a farce, and much like the Soviet Union had Politburo A, B, C, or D vote for one of them. It's much the same today, regardless of the type of party you're voting for. They all have the same platforms, welfare, jobs, etc., healthcare, and all, all these things, are all, all education. Always the same topic, so they're basically the same. But they themselves today are the power and the, and the sway of the big powerful organizations, private institutions, massive cartels, international corporations and so on, which constantly lobby them, get them into power by funding them into power. And, and then, of course, there's always payback in one form or another for, for getting you into power. But in Roman laws, as I say, the just gentium, you found it was a standard to which uh, positive law had to conform and, and agree code of morality and on which the state could be based, basically. So therefore, that's, how, that's your form of, of legislation law that you have today, which never works perfectly either. It's often rigged and, and biased and so on. There's many other things to it. You'll never have real perfection. It only exists within the heart of humanity, not in the practice of humanity in when it comes to any conflict, the law of nature. Law of nature, too, remember, is for survival. Everyone must survive. And when your choices of survival are severely limited, as they are today, because we're all rushed into the same system, we must earn something called money. <clears throat> and with that money, you're then taxed back. Uh, before all the taxes came in, especially income taxes and hereditary taxes and so on, then you you could uh, survive outside the money system on the land if you're left alone. And it, no matter how you lived or what standard you lived in, you at least lived according to the way that you wanted to live, basically. It was enough for you. You were happy with it. Today that's gone, and you're forced into a standardized tunnel, I would call it, uh, of conformity. You'll find, too, that the Middle Ages is not as tidy as our very thin history books, especially the ones that give today, it would try to make you believe. Uh, there's no doubt about it. There was always a conflict between nationhood and the king or queen, uh, empire, and you'd find the papacy too, the Vatican itself, always conflict. And in the Middle Ages, there was never meant to be total unity, in fact. that There was a, an agreement that, that uh, there'd be a combination of different forces working together and sometimes coming into conflict with each other. But as I say, it was never as tidy as they would try to put out today. And, um, but there was a practical and theoretical synthesis of them all at the time for that particular period, which brought perhaps for the most people, uh, for a while anyway, uh, the, as they called it, the greatest good. The, the fewer wars they could have, by a uniform religion, the better. But unfortunately, when another branch of the religion springs up, a new revolutionary part of it, you're back into conflict and war, etc. again. And along with all wars, most wars, in fact, are never done idealistically. It's for, they're for economic purposes. And so again, the psychopathic elements get in on board with it when they smell success and, and, and fortune for themselves on one side or the other. Various saints wrote uh, about these problems, in fact. And St. Thomas, if you go through his writings, made the accommodation between Aristotelianism and Christianity uh, by pro producing an intellectual synthesis, as you would call it, corresponding 
to the practical synthesis of law, of nature, and the ethics of perfection, which, of course, Christianity was initially based around perfection. So so he tried to create the synthesis for that, too, to make it practical to live by these laws in a, a physical world. Uh, the ideas of order and unity and synthesis are dominant mainly through his writings. And partly, too, because we're so badly needed at that particular time of conflict and upheavals and so on. Now, there's also a, another side of all of this, and that's the side of the closed world, where intellectual construction of humanity you, you lived in a closed system, which is completed world, you might say. And you could feel secure because all your questions and problems were answered for you. Here's, the, here's what I'm thinking about, what's the conclusion I must come to, and it must conform with what was already given to you to conform to. Therefore, it's a fixed system. Now, in a sense, we're going back into that today with a closed system where we're told by scientific techniques what to believe, what to think, and you, you must parrot experts' opinions all the time, not so much to think for yourselves. And with all of these different areas of the scientific technique, I include the morality and culture industries. They're all part of it, educational and so on. They're all indoctrinational, uh, and they all teach a form of conformity, a universal, that's what university means, universal belief or, or, or code of behavior and understanding, and therefore in practical ethics, etc. Now, this idea of a synthesis of natural uh, state, natural religion applied nature, you might say, uh, for living in a a physical world, and religion broke down eventually, was upset by the Reformation when Protestantism came to the fore uh, and questioned and attacked everything that existed, very very much like later communism came along, uh, and, and even the idea of Basically, the same kind of ideas we know as a Hegelian dialectic comes into play. It seems to be a common thing. This in all revolutions is that you get the you get the thesis, the antithesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis comes out of them. Uh, it happens over and over again, and that was the whole like, doctrine, basically, of uh, some types of communism and Marxism and Trotskyism was that the, the, the young ones who took over would be more revolutionary than the older ones. You find that even in the Old Testament, where, where uh, old Hebrews were, or, or the, their newer Jewish religion that came along would stone the old prophets, basically. And that's what we're accused of in the, in the New Testament. So the, the old revolutionaries were stoned, they were obsolete, and they weren't radical enough for the new. This is a common theme in all revolutions done through the ages. So the, the Reformation, you might say, in all its forms of Reformation, attacked separation of the secular and the religious life. Uh, monks were supposed to come out of their monasteries and nuns out of their convents, uh, not giving up the challenge to perfection, but to meet it, basically, in the ordinary affairs of secular life. So in other words, bring that spiritual aspect out of recluse into the open and make it work as an active thing. In, in life itself, in the natural world. And that was one of the main tenets of the Protestant religion, is when it first broke out. It was a protest against legalization, or legalizing morality, which the medieval system uh, had uh, involved. And it was an assertion of the supremacy of grace over law, that, that the spiritual aspect would be the vanguard for the changes that, that had to come. It also helped destroy the old basis of the social order and political order of a form of feudalism, which is awfully prevalent too. Not completely, not altogether at the same time across the the, the Western world, but it did succeed to an extent. It caused a revolution. Now this created naturally a dilemma uh, in conflicts of how to be governed, how to govern yourself, uh, and how to get through, survive as societies without all going in, off into uh, anarchism uh, and doing your own thing, basically, where everything would break down. And you, you find that some of the philosophers came along, of course, that are held up today, such as, such as Hobbes or the Rastian solution, which basically decided, but 
that claiming that the state should dominate religion and keep it in its place. That's what they came up with, basically. And it could, it could tolerate it if it confined itself to a pietism which has no impact on society. That's what's happened today uh, with, this, with the secular state. They allow you to have your religion as long as you don't try to dominate the system altogether by your own particular creed. And you do charitable works and, and things like that. Um, that That's tolerated today. So that part kind of won out, you might say. The other side of the Hobbes doctrine, you might say, is that um, men should believe in worship and what the state determines they should believe or worship. And I would call this political correctness, uh, the moral guidance by the culture industry, and again, a whole host of neuroscientists, psycholinguistics or neurolinguistics, on top of that, all the things that hammer us all the time and how to behave, how to react on certain topics, etc. What the state's determined today is the good and what is now the bad, often completely reversing what used to be good and bad. You can also find that if the spiritual side or, or a dominant church takes over, uh, then you can have conflict again because they believe that those at the top, those who are declared to be saints of the time in that particular religion should rule and dominate all the courts as well and court decisions, etc. And you end up with a kind of form of stagnancy and, and a stifling of thought or exploration of thought uh, by such a, a religion. And they try it in some countries and eventually it died out because the folk got fed up with it too. Even in, in, in a lot of the puritanical areas of the world, and puritans ruled, uh, they had enough of this indoctrination, heavy, heavy indoctrination, where the rules have been preset and, and carved in stone, you might say, and had no leeway uh, for free thought or examination or even applying to, to separate different individuals. Yet you'll find in the early ideas of Puritanism, again, a revolutionary spirit before it became uh, fossilized, you might say. And if you read some of the writings of the Putney debates, they were really interesting to read at school a long time ago. They were into some of this, how the, uh, many of the, the writings and statements of early Puritans, uh, who really believed they were the revolutionary force of the day, uh, the, uh, the experimental spirit, they called it, and they believe there's more to be learned and more to be revealed all the time uh, by following the Christian ethic, but also they combined it with the Judaic ethic, which again was, is more fixed. And so there was a conflict inside of it, and eventually the law side of things, the legal side of things, won out and became kind of fossilized. But uh, early on, one of them said, it says, it um, I think it was uh, one of the leaders of the Puritan Society, John Robinson it was, uh, you know, John Robinson, he says, he says I'm, very, I'm persuaded, he said, uh, to the pilgrims who were departing for, for the U.S. or Americas and, and so on, he says that the Lord had more yet to break forth uh, out of his holy word, he says, more yet to break forth. So it wasn't a done deal, what was in the scriptures. There was more to be, th- be revealed the more you studied them mm-hmm. and you would act upon them in, in, through your, the way that you lived and so on. So they believed that to be a good Christian was always to be working uh, like the sea and nature itself. Things are always in movement, not, not, not stagnant and fixed, basically. And they're always pressing forward. Truth had to be sought and eternally sought. And even when you, you found a new truth uh, that cast the old one out uh, and because it was imperfect, yet your understanding was imperfect, then you had to adopt the new truth with its, its new perfections, you might say, or understandings, which brought it to a, a better perfection. You'll find, of course, in all revolutions that the youth especially are prone to adopt these, these revolutionary ideas from either from various philosophers, whoever it happens to be at the time, who are pushing a new way because they, they don't see the great areas the same way. They haven't lived life, to, for one thing. They haven't had their ups and downs through life and the problems in life. And they're also greatly to recruit for that reason for armies as well, for warfare purposes. Here's the enemy, they're terribly bad people, go off and kill them. And they'll do that. 
uh, without knowing uh, the background of those people that were going off to kill and what led up to the fact that they were set off to kill them in the first place. So uh, they'll, they'll adopt new movements in, in the same fashion and they don't become tempered uh, and understanding until they're older and wiser. But truth, uh, initially in the Puritan movement, was what you're supposed to constantly dwell upon, the, the seeking of, of truth and life itself, all the understandings of life and the law of nature, which also combined with what they saw as the law of God and coming to all these different perfections through, through truth. It was in religion, in fact, that the notion of progress to infinite perfection appeared first of all, as I say, and in the 17th century, the 18th century, and onwards, science kind of took over that man would be perfected through understanding of man and how man ticked and worked, and science would eventually have a dominant position over society and the social sciences uh, and the new moralities which would be introduced because of their claims or findings. And for a long time now, you'll find that through the education, the standardized educations, authorized educations, remember, that we have. Free thought really is not a prerequisite at all. It's not encouraged free thought. You get your degrees and, and so on by going along with pre-established thinking, ideas and theories more than anything else. You can form. But uh, what's the practical or political implications of these conceptions of change? And it's assumed that the most precious things and society's life won't stay put. You see, that's one thing it pushes out there, that change is normal, perpetual change, and that they're bound to grow and develop in a way which can't be foreseen because of progress through scientific techniques, breakthroughs, etc. And that causes an awful lot of, again, uh, it's, it's the opposite of the middle-aged man where it, his system was fairly closed, it was very simple, it felt secure, and he didn't have to do too much worrying about anything at all in a spiritual sense. It was all laid out for him. Problems always arise with followers and leaders. Followers often, uh, long after the leader's dead, in fact, will reorganize their belief structure and change it to conform and cause uniformity. Uh, and force it upon other people too in a particular setting if they can get that power to do so. And then becomes fossilized and often hated because it constantly changes not for the good of the general populations. And history is replete with this kind of thing if you look into it. But you'll find that um, the assumption that the true democratic experience is comprised of, say, voluntary organizations and religious organizations too, and with all its beliefs uh, in open discussion uh, and uh, agreement through, through discussion and so on, and distrust of compulsory organizations and its force. You'll find that really with true free organizations, uh, they have a distrust of compulsory organization. Uh, which again is in conflict with the state. The state wants you to have be uniform, basically. So the, the, the democratic state, as it's called today, is an analogy of a, a democratic religious congregation to an extent. And that's all it can ever really be, an analogy of something, an ideal which the state itself will never allow to become reality. The U.S. Became, came closer to... The end product, you might say, or part of the end product, this endless product of what Christianity was supposed to be, and that no one particular religion would dominate the state, and there'd be a diversity of religions, although they'd have common agreements among certain things to do with religions, but um, it created a form of freedom and equality endowed within it. You didn't simply, you weren't supposed to hate someone because they were different from you in a religious or political persuasion. You'll find that some philosophers, one of them, Thomas Hobbes, for instance, had a big impact on many of the youth of his day by what he talked about, about man himself and this restless spirit of man, which was always seeking something, never feeling totally secure, 
and anxious, etc. Uh, and from that perspective, he agreed with the Puritans, who also agreed with that part of it. But Hobbes went so far as to say uh, that this was an evil thing, this, this desire, this restless spirit within him. And he, of course, put a lot of his thoughts down in Leviathan, if you ever read it. And you find that um, he was wrong in many things, too. He's, he's, he's studying insects, etc., communes of insects. It cannot be applied to humanity. That was a big Masonic thing, too. Uh, even later on, even the Royal Society, which is a Masonic institution, uh, you find that their first project after they established themselves in, in the open, that is, they already existed prior to that, was to create a, a glass beehive and study the bees, everything in its proper place, you might say, all the classes doing the, the proper thing for the class, and, and so on. So uh, that was a common, common thing. But um, you find that um, Hobbes was uh, wrong on so many things too. He, he thought that this, this fear of everything, fear of death and poverty and all the other things which are, have always been there, and, and more so since the advent of money and those who rule over it and decide what it is uh, and keep us all uh, keep their own power by using the use of money over everybody else. He said that the fear which uh, imagination induces uh, induces him to a, a restlessness. He thought it was all fear-based and fear-driven and the desire of power uh, after power was something that all men have, which really isn't true at all. The psychopathic types definitely have that in them, but most folk are not the psychopathic types. But he, Thomas Hobbes believed that man couldn't feel safe until he has everything in his hands. And um, he even believed that anarchy and war were the result of this restlessness in every single individual, rather than look upon those who tend to uh, use the crowd, as we call it today, using the crowd. And really this restless imagination is the only thing infinite about him, really, um, because he, he said that man was still selfish and that the sympathies of desires and passions were limited, uh, just like other animals. And therefore he felt that um, basically he needed a driving force to, to over the general population, almost in a totalitarian way, you'd say. So uh, this is a perpetual theme, not just with him, but many others down through the ages, much, much earlier than him as well that man is infinitely bad. All men are infinitely bad. Uh, and uh, you find that even in the Old Testament with the stories, etc., and many of the, the old Greek mythologies as well, where people can be tempted to do the wrong thing, but for their own personal gain. But Hobbes also believed that uh, these fears, especially that of death in itself, which is well used by governments, or you're all going to die or get bombed or nuked, we have to take all your rights away. He, he believed that that would be the end of, of uh, this restless spirit when all your rights and freedoms uh, are, are taken away from you, you might say, given to up to Le- Leviathan, this big monster, this system uh, that you might even say we're in today if you were to look at it properly. Many really good novelists understood this well, and you'll find that... Uh, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, for those who've read it, it says, a quote from it says, we shall persuade them, the people, says the Grand Inquisitor, that that they will only become free when they renounce their freedom to us and submit to us. And shall we be right or shall we be lying? They will be convinced that we are right for they will remember the horrors of slavery and confusion to which this freedom brought them. He goes on to say that freedom, free thought, and science will lead them into such straits and will bring them face to face with such marvels and insoluble mysteries that some of them, the fierce and rebellious, will destroy themselves. Others, rebellious but weak, will destroy one another, while the rest, weak and unhappy, will crawl, fawning to our feet and whine to us. Yes, you are right. You alone perceive his mystery, and we come back to you. Save us from ourselves. Now, it's really profound that because the scientists, social scientists at the top, the ones who work for top government, the governments, really above governments and massive think tanks that have more to say with and how you're governed than the actual governments do themselves, have been promoting this idea for a long time that all of you, all of you, uh, are not fit enough to govern your own lives. And so, under the guise of socialism, 
they, they, they're putting through through Gerfec and, and Scotland and other names for the same the same program in other countries. The idea that the state must rule from birth to death and guide the child right through uh, adulthood and throughout his whole life, and constantly readjust you along the way if you happen to have certain thoughts or even ask certain questions, too curious perhaps on certain areas, which are now taboo. And you'll be readjusted all the way throughout your life. That is really what the the humanists, etc., have have brought us to today. Now Hobbes was correct in that the new sciences, the understanding of man himself, especially, would give more power to powerful institutions and those that sought power over others. And Karl Marx also quoted Thomas Hobbes and said. Thomas Hobbes is the father of us all because he again thought that understanding and using scientific techniques and mathematics and so on they divine what human nature was and using physics and various other things too they could then control each individual for the for the perfect state which would be a uh, a rather horrible place to be if it was, everybody was the same but clones of each other and to the extent too that's really even encouraged in the idea of the, the cloning of humans into the standardized humans Huxley's brave new world idea now Hobbes too tried to apply physics this, this what they thought was a new science physics to politics and many came after him with the same idea you might say and with their different interpretations of this new science of physics. And uh, they held what they thought to be true through the use of mathematics, especially. You can go way back to Plato's time, too. He talked about mathematics as well. The Greeks were heavily involved in, in mathematics and geometry and so on to try to find out the, the applied or real, a constant, uh, unchanging things in this world where everything else seemed to change. Those things that change, Plato used to call the world of coming into being and then passing away. Uh, and uh, through mathematics, as I say, there's always a constant. There's always two and two is always four, regardless of how they try to change it in this present time uh, with various kind of relativism and so on. But things pass away. That was the key to it. Most other things pass away and are liable to change. We were born, we, we grow, we're zestful, youthful, and so on. And then you age and things change with you. You break down and at death you decay. The Greeks uh, and some of the schools, Socrates, Socrates talked about the three different uh, worlds in this world, three existences or systems in this world. And one that Plato talked about was the world of knowledge, uh, the second world, because of its very nature, couldn't be known. It could only be the, this, the object of opinion or belief or seeming, as he called it. This is, uh, you find that later on, of course, those who went to physics thought they could break down the distinction of objects, but they didn't conceive that the nature of knowledge or science had altered even when they were doing it initially in the ancient times. Plato thought that knowledge was distinguished from opinion or belief, not in being what we would call true, but in being infallible. Infallible is the key. Man's always looking for infallibilities. Something that's perfect. And unfortunately, that idea of this perfection of infallible, uh, the perfection, the total perfection of man is a scary thing because it would, it would mean that we would apply to everyone eventually and we would literally be like robots in a sense. There would be no dispute. And remember, through dispute, you really have good change at times as well. You, uh, ideas come from disputing things. And we are full of ideas. Man's supposed to have ideas all the time. It doesn't mean you follow them all. But you can look at all the different possibilities, and it also helps to teach you where these possibilities would lead, uh, good or bad. But what the ancients were talking about was probabilities, and they tried to apply mathematics in some esoteric schools to everything in life. Uh, right down to Bertrand Russell's day, he talked about the pure logic was mathematics. He really believed in this. And you find that with Hobbes as well. Hobbes didn't go into mathematics 
uh, he, he saw a book open in Euclid's theorem, I think it was, when he was middle-aged, and he was so astonished by how this formula was worked out. He was like a convert to a new religion, and he tried to apply mathematics to everything. Rapidly died much, much later in life, a devout devotee to finding truth through mathematics. But in the 17th century, the early physicists were they were revolutionary, and um, it's very different from from today with with, with definite formats and laws to do with physics, etc. Then there was many paradoxes and, and physics and ideas and theories, etc. Uh, Descartes, Descartes also talked about that. He he was into the senses of man, and he said that. Uh, they completely delude us about the nature of the natural world around us. Partially it's true, some of that is true. Your eyes don't see what you're actually, uh, or you don't interpret what you're actually seeing. We do it as best as we can through the eyes, through the nerves, etc., and reformulate in the brain like a TV camera to the screen. But it often uh, is, is clouded by what we want to see, what, we, what we're thinking at the time that doesn't coincide with the thing that we're seeing, can distort it too. And it's very much apparent when you get the scene of a crime and there's 20 witnesses all with different uh, uh, descriptions of the culprits and the events and so on and so on. For modern science, you see that our perceptions of the world are imperfect in a sense. They're, again, they're all into the same old revolutionary idea which began with religion or expresses itself through religion into the perfection of all things. And Descartes said that Cartesian first philosophy, this is what he called it, first philosophy, is the indispensable foundation of Cartesian physics. All the philosophies to do with that area must be founded on an absolute truth, an infallible truth, or else it's false. All later deductions are false. And that tends to go along with much of, of modern, modern physics today. He believed that each separate proposition of science must be by itself distinctly apprehended and seen to follow inevitably from a previous proposition, itself thus clearly and directly comprehended. It takes practice and care to know when, when we are conceiving and clearly and distinctly and to learn to know the difference between such conceptions and, uh, and unclear and indistinct apprehensions is the first essential of a scientific training. But when we do know the difference, we have only to be faithful to it to avoid error. Error arises because we will introduce, it will introduce us to give rise to answers to questions when we have not got the clear and distinct apprehension required. But modern science, when you look at modern science today, for instance, you can see how completely erroneous this account is. Entirely, uh, Descartes failed to understand uh, what he, as a physicist, was doing, in fact. His science was closely dependent upon and tied up with philosophy at the time. But as the new science progressed, it cut loose from philosophy. Philosophy had to be left behind for modern science to come into its own. For it was in practice found that scientists holding opposed philosophical views could cooperate in scientific discovery. Discoveries in optics were made harmonious by scientists, some of whom held the Cartesian doctrine of the nature of light and some of whom held the Newtonian. It did not in practice seem to matter. Hence, science cut loose from philosophy until gradually the scientists came to regard the philosopher with a kindly and courteous but ineffable pity. And when anyone mentioned metaphysics, uh, it recalled a story about a blind man looking in a darkened room for a black cat that wasn't there. So you can see how the so-called sciences have altered and changed uh, as, they, as they came along, and first from religion, then from philosophy and then to what they call today the, the, the supposed true and pure sciences uh, but it's never ever really been truly pure even today to be honest with you I think you, you can't you definitely can't if you look around you today see the distinctions of, of science as, as, as in a complete different light from politics and political direction cultural direction and the way that we're guided to go they are definitely combined together now, another thing that's awfully important is the conception 
of truth will change. If we say that proposition of modern science is true, that may no longer mean that it is clear and distinct, or that it's self-evident, or that it's intellectually satisfying. We mean that the anticipation of experience implied in it are verified in the event. Truth becomes correct. Prediction as falsehood is the only incorrect prediction. That means that when we get scientific truth by the very method which Descartes announced as a source of error by going beyond our evidence to a hypothetical assertion which only the future can confirm or reject. And it's so true, things are held up in science as literally a a religious gospel truth only to be discarded down the road. Uh, And many folk remember along the way have got their degrees by following these various hypotheses, etc. And they were pretty well fake at the time. The problem with science, too, has for a long time been the speciality, specialization, you might say, of different areas of it, where there were closed shops, but now there's interdisciplinary forces at work, and there's more communication. Therefore, discoveries in one area can affect another area, and so a true scientist will, will throw out his old ideas that he held as gospel truths to bring in uh, something updated according to the new data or new facts that have been discovered elsewhere to do with his particular field of investigation. So it doesn't matter how much mathematical equipment they have and all the rest of it, uh, new facts pop up which can discard so much that's gone before and were believed to be true. And that's a true scientist. Today, scientists, again, have unfortunately taken the path of being involved heavily in politics. We find the big um, organizations are dealing with global warming who are so well-funded. They live on grants, remember, scientists. They depend on grants. They smell the wind, where it's going, where the grant money is coming, and they, they get on board and become prostitutes for for someone else's causes. But they're well-benefited for it financially and uh, prestige-wise that they don't want to admit the truth that there have been a bunch of, bunch of prostitutes. It's so sad to see that, but it's true. Uh, they cannot be called true scientists when they've literally gone on board with a new kind of uh, uh, doctrine, of a religious doctrine done through uh, an idea, someone's idea, because it's based on, on humanism. There's too many people. How do we get them, cull them down, etc., etc.? It means the state must, and the world state for that, must take over more and more responsibilities over the individual. In fact, the individual becomes the enemy. Never forget that the individual becomes the enemy. You're all guilty of something, say those who decide that they're better than you. Blake, when he was talking about science, or scientists, in fact, uh, said that uh, humble to God and haughty to man. And that's been the attitude of the scientist for an awful long time, uh, that uh, he would accept certain uh, things he couldn't know from a, a creator-type situation, a God. Uh, he'd accept that could exist. But everything else in the world, he was dead on because he was a scientist, you see. And uh, in spite of the repudiation of certainty and infallibility, uh, you find that... Uh, Men nowadays say that modern science teaches us uh, what the church used to teach us, the infallibility uh, doctrine, basically. We're taught to obey scientists and believe them, even when they're put out there for political reasons. We parrot what they say. The, the layman's attitude to the pronouncement of science is well described. And Hilaire Belloc, for those who've read it, uh, oh, let us never, never doubt what nobody is sure about. So it's a revolutionary view of knowledge itself. You can never have complete knowledge on any particular thing. You're only a product of your own time. Now remember, all this started with religious ideas and metaphysical ideas. And down through history, big changes happened, but there were stable periods where people at least had a, a an understanding of their place in things and how they related to things in the world to them. It felt a bit more secure in some ways and a common culture. In the Christian world especially, there was a kind of common culture. But that was really up, uh, upset and went into upheaval during the Industrial uh, Revolution, basically. 
and things change with the advent of science coming in and experts coming in and all the rest of it, it threw us into a form of chaos, which in themselves too led to big experiments like Nazism and communism and, and uh, communitarianism and all of these kind of things to collectivism. They're still on the go yet in some places. And they called this this reconstruction of society, this reordering of of society in an upheaval, the great adventure. And out of that came an idea too of democracy and a form of democracy based on old English law, common law. And there are some differences between that and American law, for sure, have to do with democracy. But the, the same fundamental view uh, which they took from the Puritans, the state is only an instrument to serve society. That's how it's been for a long time, but changed over uh, the last 30 years, maybe even since World War II, into a, a more aggressive, uh, all-powerful state, unfortunately. So it's supposed to be an instrument or to, to serve society. Today it's run by experts, and they keep telling us experts run it all, etc. And... Um, we should do what the experts say. Uh, community and the values of community really should be free, but the role of the state with its organized force uh, is supposed to serve that freedom, and now it's destroying it or dominating it through the destruction of all values. That's fundamental. So all great ideas, are, are, it's like the road to hell basically is paved with good intentions, end up uh, as institutions uh, first are lauded and approved and do the right things to the best of their abilities or restrictions and then they fossilize into institutions which uh, lose touch with the general population. That's really what I'm driving at. But uh, you find in the States, for instance, there were many people who wrote about this idea of the Republican form of democracy and how people had rights, rights, rights. That was pretty new, actually, for, for a country to have it written down, what the rights were. In the British version, it was more uh, verbal, uh, which can be changed all the time by lawyers, uh, and the meanings uh, changed to suit the times, too. But in the States, they tried to put it down into a form which would exist as, and be used for as long as the people could remember it and remember what they were. They were. And they are also aware that government tends to lose its, its uh, revolutionary spirit and its decency and its goodness and become uh, narrow in its thinking and more fossilized as it gets older. That's happened too, of course. And with all these different philosophers' ideas are combined into the fact that the state, that the governments don't believe that man has the ability to govern himself, which is the ideal state of things to be, um, a form of self-government where you can decide what's right and wrong. You don't come in conflict with other people and cause make their lives hell, those around you because of your belief, but you can have differences of opinion and accept that without coming to blows. So the government believes that man will never have a harmonious system and therefore they want to literally bioengineer all of us. And that's what they've been doing for quite some time. They can't ask for volunteers naturally because no one would come forward. So it's done in ways that you don't even know is happening. That's the sad part of it. And it's become more rigid in its view of this particular thing since World War One, Two, and to the present day, as they blame the masses for all the problems in the world. Uh, they never blame the fact of the big entrepreneurs that want the wars and profit from them, and f- from the psychopaths that who help to organize these wars into being. So it's rather a sad situation that we, we find ourselves in, that you can have as many philosophers as you want, giving new ideas out, or even regurgitating old ideas and updating them for the time. But, but uh, until the state gets off the back of the people, you can't really have uh, any real true freedom uh, of, of any kind. We're stunted now. We're, we're limited in what we can say, do, think, and so on as they pretend to give certain minorities, approved minorities' rights, that they're really taking the rights away from everybody else at the same time. And that's an important thing to notice. Not not what they claim that they're doing, but what are they really doing uh, when everyone has limited what they can say, do. There's never been such a monitored society 
as we have today. That, that every individual, doesn't matter who you are, even if you're conforming perfectly to your indoctrination, you're still monitored with your daily uh, chit-chats on your phone, your emails, and everything else you do. And you've been trained to put up all your information uh, on different sites, and that's a good thing. You've been trained that's a good thing, a normal thing to do, and it really has cut the, 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 all the problems of the totalitarian state into a tiny, tiny fraction. There were not, not much left at all, because in a totalitarian system, everyone must be predictable. And they do that by updating your profile constantly, and eventually you will have knocks on the door when you change your habits and your routines. They want to know why. If they can't find it from you by you volunteering to put things up on your net and saying why, they want to find out why you're changing it. What are you thinking about when between this time and that time that you used to go to this club or whatever, what are you thinking about now? It could be dangerous, you see. This is, this is what happens in totalitarian states. Uh, and today the totalitarian states has the advantage of having incredible om- omnipotent powers almost over all of us when it comes to information gathering and spying upon the people. Spying is spying. There's no nice way to put it. American and English democracy, as it used to be called, if you can call it that, was a function of the state to serve the community and to help to make it a community by removing the disharmonies and corruptions which hinder the common life. But we have to deal with a paralysis of will, and that's what happens when the state becomes powerful, which is largely due to men holding on to an antiquated interpretation of freedom. Freedom is, is, is always recognized needs power to an extent. You need the power to be left alone. But if we think of freedom as merely being merely um, let alone, then freedom and power are thought of as opposites and power as a necessarily evil. In the U.S., Roger Williams and his successors recognized that the state was an instrument of power and had sought to preserve the freedom of the centers of inspiration and growth by using power for a strictly limited purpose and keeping it in its proper place at a distance. Power came to be thought of as a necessity and or a necessary and but ugly thing, not pertaining to the beautiful free life of the churches and the colleges. In time, some of their members came to thank God that they were not as other men are, even these soldiers and politicians. No doubt the soldiers and politicians did their moral dirty work for them, but it was dirty work, and its existence was one of those disagreeable facts. It's better not to see. So behind all of this, there's always the the corruptive forces too, and, and dirty and nasty forces. Power can't help but have those particular forces. The toleration of society is what degree of the dirty power are you willing to put up with? That really is what it comes down to. And the answer to all of this came uh, with the Cold War and all the massive debates went on between those who, on both sides of the Cold War, on how to control future societies. And they've been implementing it uh, for an awful long time, this changing of the human, each individual human themselves, to a form of conformity, uh, beginning with indoctrination, using the, the psychological sciences, etc., the training, and also bioengineering through food, uh, water, and probably inoculations too, which definitely affect more than just your immune system with the high sciences that go into them. So therefore, uh, the, the answer to disharmony in the world is to completely alter humanity itself to be a good, obedient servant. Back, you go back again to Hobbes' idea with uh, the insects living in harmony. Well, insects can't help it because it's gen- genetically programmed. They don't have abstract thought and the choice of moral rights are wrong. They don't have that. They have no choice. They're the perfect slave, you might say. And those are those who, who work today in high echelons of society that have the same view of humanity, that that's the society they want to bring in, where you're all completely predictable because you're genetically programmed to be so. I'm trying to cram a lot of stuff in, really, to something that's come out of the top of my head tonight, but um, I hope you get some sense out of what I'm saying. 
and understand how it applies to today, how things are becoming the way that they've become. Uh, those involved, of course, how they've come along this path to think as they do, the ones who want control over you, and and to give you an insight too into uh, the ways that we think. We all do think in certain things in common uh, about certain topics. Uh, we have certain drives too that all of us have, and these also influence our behavior as well, and so on. But there are also those who will not only use your questioning against you, if they can grab it and then guide you into the correct or the, the authorized way to think and perceive this thing, but they can also use your own drives against you as well. A very, very perfected technique today uh, with hypersexualization through the culture industry and through your training at school even. Uh, so you become a collage, you might say, by the time you come through schooling and university uh, of all indoctrinations from the different sciences and how they've been brought to, to affect you. Uh, they churn out, rather than free thinkers, they, they really churn out uh, conformists who think because they're disagreeing about certain things in public and disagree that they're actually free thinkers. They're not free thinkers at all. They have far more in common with each other uh, in their ideas and perceptions and deductions than they, they'd like to admit. And these are the people you should really start to fear because they have powerful institutions and they definitely think they have the right do as they wish with humanity. Always for the common good, remember, for the good of all, meaning total peace, because no one can think for themselves except the free men at the top, the wild men, as Charles Galton Darwin called his own particular class. So anyway, I hope you get something out of this. And from Hamish and myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods go with you.